Welcome to the Welfare Culture Podcast, where we talk about all things Indigenous wellness. I hope everyone is doing well. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Wealth for Culture podcast. And this is episode nine, and this is all about responsive Indigenous parenting. What's up, everybody? This is your co-host, Chelsea, and I am so grateful that you all decided to join us again for another Wealth for Culture podcast. We wanted to thank everybody for all the great feedback that we got on our last episode, the Healthy Relationships episodes. If you haven't listened to that one yet, please do. And um, we always say that the biggest honor and the most special feedback that we could get is when people actually find our content to be very useful and applicable to their lives. And so we just got dozens of messages from people who said that the episode really made a difference for them. And um, that's the most that we can ask for. So thank you all so much for that feedback. Yeah, I'm definitely grateful for that. I love that. That's that's always something that is very rewarding with the work that we do with Welfare Culture, whether it be here with the podcast or whether it be us doing trainings and working with communities. It's the feedback and people expressing how much that they appreciate the information, the knowledge and and just um the impact that, that it's having on them is uh is very is very good and that's the reason why we do this it's it's really nice to hear so thank you all out there once again for taking the time to listen to that last episode and while we were recording that episode we knew that the topics that we were going to be covering would be some things that certain people really needed to hear and we just felt really good about about following our intuition and getting into that episode and, and sharing from our personal stories. So I'm just glad that we're able to help contribute to certain people's wellness journey in some way, shape or form. We did receive a comment also that was a little bit more of a critique and we appreciate those as well when when we are um, held to a higher standard. And um, a, a brother emailed in and said, hey, you know, you might be upholding heteronormative um, standards by um, assuming that your daughter will grow up to be with a man or to be straight. And so I encourage everybody to, uh, I list, I had to re-listen to that part of the podcast and really hear my words. And just to clarify, we were talking about um, how our daughter will grow up in a home seeing a man treating a woman with respect and that hopefully she'll expect the same thing about her relationship. I just want to clarify that when I said a man and a woman, I was specifically talking about me and Thosh, which is who we are. And I did, um, and we do in our mentality, leave it open in terms of our daughter uh, becoming the person who she will be. Um, That being said, we also don't speculate too much about her future or who she will become because um, we just like to live in the moment with her and that's all. But it is a, a very strong value of ours as parents to accept our daughter for who she is in this world and to allow her to, you know, reveal every aspect of her personality and her truest self to us and to support her along the way. And so um, I've read a lot about that being one of the hardest things for parents of any culture is to accept who their children are as individuals because 
that's where they run into a lot of problems when they expect that their child is going to be a carbon copy or even a better version of themselves. And that's not um, what we're doing as parents. We're not bringing versions of ourselves. We're bringing individuals into the world. And so I did want to just, you know, share that comment and that critique in case anybody else misheard us or believes that we are, um, you know, discriminatory in any way because it's we're absolutely not um, those type of people. We really support and love um, diversity in this world. And that's the values that we uphold and we encourage others to as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when we talk about making it normal once again to see a man respect a woman, that I believe goes across the board regardless of our sexual orientation. Because as we know today, the big movement to, for women to reclaim their power is, is now. It's, and it's more than ever. And that is because women's power have been taken away from, from them by Western patriarchy. And many of our indigenous men have been a part of that as well. And so in our home, that's one thing that we are consciously parenting. And that is what we are objectively doing is showing that men need to respect our women once again. And that's what we we all always are trying to show aloe. So regardless of the sexual orientation, there's the movement for men to heal and to treat women with utmost respect once again, like how our ancestors had did. And so I still believe that that's something that needs to be upheld in all homes, in all communities. So with that, we are going to get more into our conscious parenting episode. And this has been another one that has been highly requested. Uh, Tasha and I, as everybody knows, is parent, are parents to a one and a half year old. And it's the greatest joy of our lives. And what we have learned and realized through our process of learning parenting is that there is a huge resurgence of indigenous parents um, reestablishing and reconnecting with some of our ancestral practices when it comes to the pregnancy, the birth, the labor, the delivery, and of course, the child rearing. And so we're going to talk all about those practices and how we personally approached um, th this huge moment in our lives. And so with the healthy relationships episode, that is the foundation of conscious, responsive, indigenous parenting. The healthy relationships is a foundation of that. And it starts with each and every one of us, as we said in the past, it starts with our own healing and wellness. And then we come together to make this, this strong family unit that's going to foster this new life in the, into the world and create space where this new life can, can flourish and bring their, their gifts and their teachings into the world. And so again, with everything having to do with the movements today in native country, the, the cultural revitalization efforts, the cultural evolution, preservation, preservation with our languages, our ceremonies, our songs, our dances, our, our, our original healing ways, all of this really is, is dependent on how well we raise our children and raising our children in a space where all of this is, is, is daily again, it's customary, it's normal. And so I, I always kind of go back like with our original culture and history when it comes to anything about our contemporary indigenous culture today. 
And I think about a lot of how the oral tradition tells us that where I come from, amongst the the desert people, the Salt River people in Arizona, they it, it was said that that children um, up until about four they would be mostly with their moms, and a lot of the mothers worked together and they had their duties in the village, just like the men had their duties in their village. But a lot of the women had worked together; they helped each other, and there was a lot of times where the women would be breastfeeding each other's children while other would be busy doing something. So our children were, were really brought up and raised in, in, in a larger community uh, than, than generally what we are today. And then about four or five years old, a lot of the children would start like assisting and working in the village with everyday duties. So some of them would go with the men, some of them would go with the women and they were learning their duties. And that would take them into their their coming of age. And then the coming of age ceremony for the young man, it was when the voice had cracked. And for the young woman, it was for her first time she had her moon. Then they would go through their coming of age ceremonies. And from that point, they were considered to be adults. They were able to, to recreate life. And so it was a big task. And it was a ceremonial thing. It's a very special thing for that young person to become a young adult. And immediately they would start to take on duties and responsibilities of of hunting and uh, working in the fields or planting, harvesting food, building things in the community, or maybe being a part of the warrior society. And so our children were raised hands-on. Our children were given tasks early on, and they learned responsibilities early on. And they were instilled teachings, values, how to respect each other, how to respect the elders that were older than them respect animals, all living things. And, and so children were, were also shown this. All the adults in the villages displayed this. And that is how we as human beings have always learned. We've learned by watching others and how they respond to things. Watching others and how they act, how they do it. How do they sing? How do they sing? How do they pray? How do they do the dance? That's how our children learn. They learn from us. And so from what I was told is that there wasn't a lot of lecturing like we do today. And I believe that today there is a space for that. It is important that we lecture, but we also, the biggest thing we have to remember once again is that our children are learning from watching us. They're learning our actions and all of the daily lifestyle habits that we have, whether they're positive or negative for our health, our children are picking it up. So conscious and responsive indigenous parenting again is about ourselves healing ourselves so we can show the next generation a good way to live yeah there is a huge uh legacy of really incredible practices uh regarding child rearing and parenting in indigenous communities and one of the things that is also true across the board that i've heard from every tribal nation that we've traveled to is that there was never any abuse or um corporal punishment in the home we didn't hit our kids and um, if you if that type of abuse is happening in native homes today, it's tends to be a legacy of the boarding school or residential school era. So um, those type of things are what we're all collectively working on getting back to as native parents in this generation is healthy, happy homes and um, with respectful and responsible children who do not need to be abused in order to learn how to listen. Um, getting back to those practices of where we're 
uh, including our sisters and our brothers and our grandparents and um, the extended families in a healthy way in terms of helping us raise our children. And so um, we're so excited about that. And we have loved this process already as parents. Yes. And in addition to to all of that, uh, with the absence of of physical abuse, there was there was there was no there was no sexual abuse. There was no emotional or verbal abuse onto children. And if children had to be disciplined, they were disciplined with with a positive action. And a lot of it was was proactive, a lot of the parenting. So, you know, of course, children were, you know, would act out because it's just our human nature for children to act out. But our people were more more understanding. They were more patient. They understood more uh, about the the process of of a young child becoming uh, an adult and all of the the obstacles that came with it. And so, again, none of this existed. As we always say, everything we're, ex we're experiencing today with sexual abuse, with physical abuse, emotional, verbal abuse, uh, all of that domestic violence, dating violence, all of that is new. That's all new. Those are all the symptoms that we have learned from dominant culture and colonialism. And so the movement today is really about healing all of that and restoring the original societal structure teachings, the relationship that we have with each other. So for us, it started with pregnancy as soon as we found, well, actually, no, what you've learned in our, from our stories before is that both Dosh and I had long healing journeys as individuals before we began our relationship. Then we were able to engage in a healthy relationship. And from there, we uh, decided that we were ready to become parents. And so with our pregnancy, there was already a lot of wellness work that had been done, but, um, of course, we had a lot to learn. And um, with the exciting news of pregnancy, this is our first tip is that start asking questions of your elders, your parents, uh, your spiritual leaders in your community. What you'll find is that a lot of indigenous teachings are not going to be in the books or in the blogs um, or in any of these mainstream parenting resources. Uh, but our philosophies and our techniques are quite a bit different from the mainstream. And so you have to start asking questions and advice and really be open to that. Um, we learned so much from, uh, from those types of resources of just, again, it proves that the oral tradition is still very strong in our community. So uh, don't be discouraged if you're not finding this stuff in a book, the information is out there, but uh, you just have to ask. Yeah, absolutely. And again, with with uh, beginning to parent from an indigenous perspective back from our cultures, again, it starts with birth. It, it all starts with birth. It starts with the baby in utero. It's a very sacred and special time. And I, I feel like I was kind of being prepared for this because about three years, two or three years before, I got with Chelsea, I started kind of just learning about a lot of the birthing protocols and how the man would act. And one thing that I learned was that it's not just a woman that's pregnant, it's the man. The man is pregnant too, in a spiritual sense. He's contributing to helping to create life. And you kind of see that, I heard that a lot kind of growing up, um, and then it would be in a joking manner because the man would gain weight, you know? <laughs> and um, I could see how that happens. And so, again, that was one of the first things that that came very apparent to me. And so that's one thing I, I a tip I suggest and encourage a lot of other um, fathers to be out there or already existing fathers who are expecting more children is that if you haven't thought about that before, that may be one teaching that you can adopt in your mind. And when we start to adopt teachings in our mind 
uh, and we remind ourselves of it every day, it becomes conscious and it changes our behavior. It changes the way we walk in the world. And so that's why adopting worldviews and teachings are very important in making it normal in our everyday habits. So um, that's one of the first things that I learned. And I was also learning some other things um, before we became pregnant and I was able to put those into to action and became very excited about it. And then when we became pregnant, I started asking around both Chelsea and I started asking more elders, more people in our, our, our families that had been parents, uh, talking to our spiritual leaders and getting more advice. And one thing that I found out is that all across native country, a lot of our nations followed some of the same practices and protocols. For one, that's very common um, from the Haudenosaunee, Iroquois Confederacy, to the Navajo people, to the Autumn over here is that, I believe the Hopi as well, is that when the man and woman are pregnant, the man doesn't go out to hunt. And he is a part of creating life. And so he doesn't want to take life because it's, I guess, in a sense, it's going against what they are trying to accomplish together. Um, also, too, is that when you know when you hunt animal, you have to gut the animal and and you see blood and things like that. So those are things that was was advised not to do because you experience something that babies spiritually, in a sense, experiences that. And I think the Western science is kind of catching up and they're kind of showing that that how uh, you know trauma also is passed on in utero, and so. So those are that was one thing that I was excited to put into action is not going out um, and, 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 and hunting or anything like that, because I was really focused on us creating life. And even all life is sacred, no matter how small it is. So we would even spare like like insects and things. And and so like anytime there was like a spider or some kind of bug, you know, I would, you know, scoop it up and, and take it out and put it outside in another place. And even then before I never killed spiders or nothing like that. Um, but that was more extra careful this time about taking these, these, these small lives and putting them elsewhere. Uh, and then that really changes your mindset. Again, when you are acting in that way every day, it changes your outlook on life and it makes you more, uh, appreciative. You have more reverence for all life. And I think that that's what part of that teaching is to foster is to teach reverence for life. And because you are creating life. So just to reiterate, I think it is really important that all men do consider themselves pregnant and they consider themselves an equal partner in the pregnancy. Um, all, all partners should uphold themselves to that responsibility because when they don't, that's when we end up with circumstances where uh, pregnant women and children and babies are uh, mistreated and disrespected and, and not supported in the way that they should be. And so I really appreciated that about Thosh. And we should all, uh, you know, take a moment to acknowledge a lot of indigenous men are starting to reclaim this practice of being equal partners in the pregnancy. And that really is revolutionary because as recent as my grandparents' generation, I even hear a lot of people from our parents' generation, the women will talk about how no way would the man get up in the middle of the night or change any diapers or consider himself, you know, responsible for going to the doctor's appointments and for, um, you know, uh, changing his own behavior to reflect the sacredness of the pregnancy. No way was that stuff going on as recently as our parents' generation and definitely into the grandparents' time. So 
It's revolutionary. It's exciting. And we got to continue to expect that out of our men. Other things, too, that we we followed is that we stayed out of the large crowds. It was also advised to us to stay out of large crowds. Again, I learned this from from a lot of other nations through my travels. And I came home and I started asking elders in our area. And they said, yeah, that's that's how we did it, too. Originally, that's what we do as well. And we also had um, abstained from watching any kind of shows with a lot of violence on it. And uh, well, we, we were actually in the middle of uh, watching Narcos, right? And what's the other one? We were, uh, watching? we were watching season two of Fargo, which is a series, um, an amazing series that uh, Zon McLarnon is in and some other great actors. But yeah, it's super, super violent TV shows that Thosh mm-hmm. and I were watching before. <laughs> like if you know me and Thosh, we both grew up watching a lot of action movies and war movies. And those are like our favorite genres. Um, and those are the TV shows we were watching. But we had to get out of that mentality and remove ourselves from the the violence being in our <laughs> burned into our brains every day as entertaining as it is. Um, you start to realize when you're not watching that stuff, how it sort of desensitizes you to these like gory and bloody images and stuff. And what we learned from our elders is that anything that you're ingesting or bringing into your home during the pregnancy is going to impact the baby and it's going to impact your own spiritual emotional wellness, which which the baby will feel. So once we stopped watching those shows, uh, we we turned on some more PG or PG thirteen content. Like we really enjoyed watching Longmire. <laughs> we watched all seven seasons of that, um, and just other things. And that was one of our favorite things to do. Is we would sit, you know, quietly every night, and I would like. I taught myself how to hand sew, and I would sew little blankies and bibs and stuff for aloe, and we'd be watching these uh milder shows that were still fun to watch so yeah definitely staying away from the violence is important whether it means actual hunting or actual you know killing animals or whether it means um you know removing that media from your day-to-day life yeah and you know there's a a certain level of of trauma that happens when we are watching something traumatizing and gory on tv and that is part of what I call an updated protocol that we as Native people fo- should follow today because the brain perceives it, you know, of course, it's going to have more of an impact if you're witnessing this in person, but the, the brain still perceives this as a, sort, as a certain level of trauma. And I believe that seeing it even on the TV or the laptop or the phone also does its harms. And we have old practices where warriors if they'd gone to war and they'd take taken life they had to go through a certain ceremony and fast before they became integrated back into the to the village and it was believed that they would act out it was uh that they would have they would be um in a bad way because of what they saw in war and today we know that is ptsd and and so our people understood this for a long time so this goes for this for us this goes the same, uh, and especially when you are carrying that new young life, we're trying to foster that young life and baby experiences everything that the parents experience. So we have to be very careful about what we are taking in with our eyes, our ears, um, what we are eating and what we are absorbing with just our sixth sense, our energy around us. Yeah, the same goes for the music that you're listening to, uh, the type of people who you're around, the type of language that you're using in the home. Um 
all that kind of stuff should be really taken into consideration during a pregnancy and then continued on into the child rearing stages. And it has a practical application. It, it, there's a really a good reason for all of this stuff. So just generally speaking, if you're a bit confused about this stuff, just consider this. Be extra careful with your body, with your mind, with your words, and with your actions. And so what we also do too is we had to put away some of our, our sacred items. And um, this is what, what what we do where I come from. And and the reason why we put away certain sacred items is because when the woman is pregnant and the man, they are extra powerful. They have more power. And that power sometimes can hinder the power of our sacred items. And that's what's told by a lot of our spiritual leaders. And so that was one thing that that I always heard growing up as well. And because the man is powerful, he and the woman, and they stay away from, from ceremony. And so at this time, too, when we found out we were pregnant, I was actually in, in the process um, of, of helping to prepare for one of our ceremonies. And so when I found out we were pregnant, I had to step back because it is that something that the men have always done is they stayed um, out of involvement because, again, the, the power of them both might be a hindrance on, on on some of the medicine being used in the ceremony. So, of course, every nation is going to be a little different. They're going to have their own teachings. But that was one thing, too, that that um, we found useful. And also, um, one of the things that we do where I come from is that when uh, they are pregnant, they stay away from going to wakes or funerals because the energy of death is present. And we are in the process of creating life. And so we don't we don't uh, blend those there. But there's 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 some exceptions to to that. And because we're all still sort of revitalizing many of these practices. And so we have to, I guess, adjust here and there, um, especially when we come from intertribal homes where we have people that have different practices, you know. And so it's always a a, a delicate thing to try to juggle. And I encourage every family to find out how they walk together especially if they come from from different nations so in another episode we're going to talk a lot about some of the other stuff that we were really careful about of course i was careful about the foods that i ate and the type of exercise i was doing and the type of medical care that we were choosing and the midwifery that we were choosing but that's all kind of for another episode because there's a lot to that so just an fyi we will be addressing that down the line uh, but today we're still going to stick to some of these more like philosophical and ancestral um, practices that we were learning about during that time. One of the things that we decided to do was to not find out the gender of the baby and to not be looking at the 3D um, ultrasound pictures and stuff like that. Um, we thought that it would be just a really, really fun uh, surprise to not know the gender. And the other thing is that we didn't want our knowing the gender to color our perceptions of what our baby's personality might be like and that kind of thing. We just didn't want to emphasize too much the importance of that. And obviously that's really different from mainstream Western and American culture right now. There's this huge thing where people love to do their gender reveal parties and stuff like that, which I always think is so funny. Um, and so I'm not knocking people who do that, but I'm just saying that um, for us, that that was kind of out of our realm of what we thought was um, our ancestral practices. And so um, my sister and uh, many other people that we know also saved the um, finding out the gender for the day of the birth. 
And for me, I can't recommend it enough. It was the best surprise of a life just to, you know, come out of my C-section surgery and uh, for them to hand me my little baby girl and say, here she is. You know, it was just a, a beautiful moment. And so uh, it was a lot of fun. And then the other thing that we didn't do is uh, choose her name or talk about names too early. For one thing, of course, we didn't know the gender, but um, we waited to even begin having that conversation until I was about eight and a half months pregnant. We wanted the name, the idea for it to just come to us naturally. Uh, so it took some time for us to even be thinking about it. Uh, we also decided even when we did come up during the pregnancy with a few names that we liked, we knew and agreed that we should wait to meet the baby until officially choosing a name. And so that's how we went about it. And that was uh, a fun thing to do as well. Yeah. And for me, you know, the surprise element of not finding out the gender was definitely a plus. When I told some of the uh, people in the community and the older folks, hey, we're pregnant. And they one thing that someone said is, oh, we're happy for you. And we hope that you guys will follow our original practices and we hope that that you're you won't find out the gender and that you'll just go through the pregnancy in a good way. And, and that that also stuck out to me, too. And so the, the way I feel about it is that when we don't know the gender, we are not placing like Chelsea said, we're not placing those expectations upon the child and we are simply just thinking and acknowledging of that child is a new young life and then the gender doesn't matter at this point for us and we are more we are more open-minded with it and for me that was very helpful very beneficial through that whole process and of course you would wonder too and that was also nice to be, to be able to wonder am i having a, well, a daughter or as a boy and how will they be and amazing experiences i've ever had in my entire life was when I came in to see Aloe for the first time minutes after she was born and I seen that she was a girl. And one of our practices was also to to acknowledge the child in the language and to introduce yourself to the child in the language. And so I was seen when I first seen that she was a girl, I yelled out to everyone. I said, don't you hear, don't you hear? And um, our moms were were on the other side of the glass. And because uh, we ended up being in a hospital last minute, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But our moms were on the other side of the glass. They couldn't hear me. And so their faces they were looking at us. And then Donna, Chelsea's mom, with like, I can just see her lips gesturing. What is it? And I was like, oh, it's a girl. And then they all like, you know, flew away from the window, texting with the phones and everybody and start crying. And it was just it was amazing. I don't know. I just love the story. And but immediately started to. Yeah. Immediately, I started to talk to Aloe and tell her who I am and all that. And it was, um, you know, in our language. And and it was uh, it was a, a beautiful moment to to see who she was. And even when she was in infant stages in the really sacred period, um, we didn't expect a lot of her because of that. She was a girl. We we're still seeing her as just this young and new life, you know, and just fostering that life and appreciating that. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because um some people say that the reason that they do want to find out the gender is so that they can pick out all the right clothes and all the right outfits and stuff. And um, I just find that funny because 
sometimes we don't even tend to question these norms that like Western American culture has put on us. Like, why is it that we think girls need to wear pink and that boys need to wear blue? I think a lot more parents are realizing this now. But for me, it wasn't a priority to have these gendered clothing or gendered um, uh, bedroom decorations for the child. And in addition to that, I actually tried as hard as I could to not even think about the material things so much during the pregnancy and to deprioritize that and to really think more about the health and the spiritual well-being of our home and our family and, and the womb and all of that. So again, shifting away from the um, prioritizing the material aspect and again, just like toward the the spirituality of of the experience, I believe is another way of re-indigenizing our pregnancy and our childbirth experience. Yeah, and, and even like in Diné culture, they don't buy things right for the baby. Yeah, not well, at all. Right, whether in utero and you know, I think there's a lot of utility to that as well. And we got some items too before just to be prepared because we don't want to be running around town with a newborn <laughs> as few as possible yeah we got very few stuff yeah. and then it kind of made sense though that kind of makes sense because uh, we were given a lot of clothes or we bought some clothes and Alla didn't fit a lot of them <laughs> yeah she didn't fit into the newborn sizes like the first outfit that i brought for her to the hospital that i thought she was gonna wear it was too small for her right when she was born right so there's like a lot of like practicality <laughs> and not not bringing, not purchasing not everything in advance because you have yet to meet the child. And the other thing that we realized is that you don't need, the only thing you absolutely need when you leave the hospital is maybe a blanket, um, depending on the weather, you know, whatever you need to keep your child warm or cool. And then you need a car seat to drive home. Um, other than that, you, it's really minimal the material items that you actually need for your baby if you're breastfeeding um you know you don't even need bottles all that if you want to know more about that we wrote a blog i wrote a blog post about it you can go to welfareculture.com and find out um in the middle minimalist mom baby essentials but um but that's all we'll say on that for now um so that was another reason why we didn't find out the gender because we didn't feel like we needed to pick out this whole wardrobe for boy or girl and a little bit more about her name too like chelsea said earlier that she didn't we didn't start thinking about Allo's name right away we 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 thought about it not for like eight or nine ten months during the pregnancy we kind of started thinking about ten? how do we what's that 10 months yeah maybe about 10 months we started thinking about how we want to go about choosing her name and and again that also goes into some of the original uh practices and protocols uh we started asking how how do we go about the name and and uh, that was one thing that I remember hear, hearing growing up, too, is that a lot of our elders would say, well, sometimes it'd be the grandfather or the grandmother or there'd be a name giver. They would come over and they would they would they would get to know the baby and they would they would pay attention to what's happening in the natural world. And that would be a part of their name or whatever. So we thought, you know, the name will just come to us once Aloe is born. And when we start having ideas leading up to her being born, we can start thinking about that. And choosing the name is such a fun process, but I think one of the reasons that we decided to wait for it until later is because we really had reverence for 
each day of the pregnancy and we did not take even one day for granted that we maintained a healthy pregnancy. And, uh, you know, we, we fully recognize and have uh, all of the sympathy and empathy in the world for those who have lost pregnancies or for those, um, you know, who have other tragedies that occur. And so we just didn't want to choose a name really early on and to just go about it thinking, you know, that everything was going to be perfect. We wanted to really have appreciation for every day and to not take it for granted. And so um, it was a good feeling, you know, to to go ahead and select that name and give her that name um, the day that she got there. And uh, we have an intertribal family, obviously, and we wanted to utilize our indigenous languages in the naming, but we also were really interested in just picking a common name for her, meaning a name that like her first name, her bureaucratized name that she'll use in her day-to-day life that will be on her birth certificate. And that's aloe. And we wanted that particular name to be simple and easy to say and easy to spell. And we wanted it to have a beautiful flowing sound. And so that's kind of why we chose that. And so people ask us, you know, what does it mean? And they get really disappointed when we don't say like, you know, uh, warrior of the moon or something like that. And that's not to poke fun at indigenous names. We love indigenous names that are um, we have. super meaningful. We have our names that we were given in ceremonies at different times in our lives. And so we knew that Aloe would be given names in ceremony as she grows older and as her, um, uh, whether it be her accomplishments or her personality, you know, comes out and reveals itself. That's the practices that our ancestors have always done is sometimes they'd be given a name at birth and then another name later on in life, an adult name. Um, and it, it varies a little bit based on the, the nation that you come from. But so we wanted to respect and honor that as well. And to, again, so we just chose kind of a common name. And then Akawe, her middle name, it means first in the Ojibwe language. So we did use our our uh, tribal lineage, our, our indigenous language, but um, it has a practicality to it. It just means she's our first. Yeah, and the name aloe, too, when you say aloe, the way it rolls off your tongue is nice. The frequency it creates is nice. So words are not always about meaning. The The sound or the frequency a word creates also is meaningful. And that's why songs are so meaningful, like vocalables that don't have words. It's because... It's about the frequency in which the voice is singing it at. And the other the other name, too, that that we also call Aloe is that when I first was talking to her and meeting her in the hospital and I looked out the window and the first thing that I seen, it was very of evident of this this mountain that's standing there. And it's one of the mountains that we call Vinamtwag. It's Iron Mountain. And Aloe had been through so much leading up to her her, her delivery when Charles first, first came in labor. And that's another story that we're telling later on down the line. But Aloe went through so much and she she came out and she came out well and she came out with the cord wrapped around her neck and all this. And she came out well and we were so grateful and she was just so strong to me. To me, I was like, wow, like this, this young life just endured so much. She's so strong. And I looked out the window and I saw that mountain standing there 
by itself just strong and that mountain is called Vainam Tuag. So I thought to myself, maybe that's what we can also call her, Vainam Tuag Juhia, Iron Mountain Girl. And it kind of sounds like a name too that comes from her Lakota side, but you know, in autumn language. So I like it. It's like a blend. Yeah. It, I think her name really suits her too. So it's just interesting. Your baby will definitely help you pick its pick his or her name. Um, and that's a really fun part of the process. We love also, by the way, hearing about how other parents um, from intertribal families choose names and decide to go about that whole process because there really is a million different ways that you can do it um, in terms of not just the birth name, but how you give the names throughout life, you know, which ceremonies you tend to bring your children to and your family to. And, um, you know, this is just how we ended up doing it. And it's not to criticize other ways. We also absolutely love when um, babies are given, you know, um, other names, uh, more complex names to begin with and that they use those as their everyday names. That's very cool, too. So that's just our process. But um, there's a lot of ways of doing it. And something else that we were fortunate to do is that we used a, a obsidian knife to to disconnect aloe from her placenta. And as we know, the placenta is also very sacred as it supplies baby its nutrients. And so to sever that is kind of like a, it's a thing. It's it's a it's a very meaningful thing because that placenta has been has been tending to that baby in aloe's case for nearly 10 months <laughs> and so to disconnect um i tried to use a good mind to do it and thank that placenta and that cord and so i got to disconnect using the the obsidian knife there and that was preferred over just steel cold steel and done very meaninglessly you know and so I, we felt really good about that and so those were some practices that we were we were able to do and, and again we'll talk more about this a little bit later on down the line and about this space that we were in and everything and of course um with our practices and i know a lot of other nations follow this too is that um, the placenta is also buried in a place that's sacred to the family whether it be the family's home or the land or some other sacred space wherever the family is at and that ties the child to the land it keeps them coming back and that was what was done for me and uh, all of my siblings and i think that's what keeps us grounded to the land there and even if you move away and you, you move to a new land you still are really grounded spiritually to that land there and so we did that for alan we just we just felt really good about that and it's it's again wellness is starting that child's life in, in all the way in utero to a way they were to when they are a newborn that's when wellness starts it starts with all these practices and protocols so that's why all of these pregnancy practices and protocols uh, are really important for our, our 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 wellness and our happiness and of our of our lives and so so those are just some teachings there's a lot more to say but of course some things that we keep to ourselves. but we encourage all of you out there if you're new expecting parents or maybe you already have children but maybe you want to do things different with your next child and you want to follow a lot of the original indigenous birthing practices we encourage everyone to get out there and to talk to your elders talk to look to your knowledge bearers and find out what are the teachings and how do we implement them in this contemporary modern setting and sometimes you can also talk to your your neighboring um uh communities and nations that they may have practices that are pretty similar to um you know their neighbors and and that's what we find here in arizona all of the nations here have very similar practices and in fact all across native country and that's what is also 
that's what also makes me think that this is very important because you have nations, you know, from coast to coast that in pre-colonial times followed these same practices. So there must be utility and truth in following these practices that people have been doing for thousands of years, much longer than medical and science has been around. And so we encourage everyone to get out there and find out what that is and even utilize and recreate what makes sense for you spiritually, what will put your family on a good path. So something that we realized in the pregnancy and on that carried on and continues to carry on as we raise her is that it's just an absolute honor to raise a child. And when we approach parenting that way, then the frustrating moments aren't so frustrating. You learn to calm down and the challenging moments really seem, you know, absolutely worth it to go through. And the lonely moments are easier to cope with because you do have challenges in those early stages of parenting. And it is a very, very sharp learning curve. But when you realize in a spiritual sense that the baby actually chose you for their parent, that little spirit somewhere said, I'm, I want these two people to bring me into the world. You realize it's just an honor to be able to do that. And um, I think in Western culture, sometimes there's this mentality of like, oh, your life is over. Oh, man. Um, wait, wait, do you have kids? Then you then you really, you know, going to suffer kind of a thing. And there's also I've heard a lot of people say, oh, your relationship is going to be over when you have kids. It's just it gets really bad. It gets really hard. And that may be true. But I want to say that it doesn't have to be true. Um, I can't express enough positivity that has come and joy and happiness that has come into our life and our relationship since the arrival of our daughter and since our pregnancy. And so it really is up to you. It's your decision and how you want to approach it. And if you lead well lifestyles, you know, coming up to it, um, then yes, you know, your child will bring a disruption, but that disruption doesn't have to be negative. It can be just this earth shaking awakening that you even feel like a brand new person. And um, I believe that that's the way that our ancestors would view these times of disruption, like the new spring, uh, the first thunder coming in the spring, for example, was always a time of reverence for Lakota people and joy. And yes, it's a disruption, but, um, but it brings many, many new uh, wonderful things. Yeah, that's one thing that the parents can do during the time where they are pregnant is to adopt that teaching in their mind that you were chosen. You were chosen by that child spirit for whatever reason. And that is a, a huge but honorable task. It's, a, it's, it's one of the greatest things that we as human beings can do is to bring life into the world. And I think that there is a lot of honor in that. And when we are being put in that position, we should change our outlook on life and we should change how we walk in life. We should change and act accordingly how we treat others, how we treat ourselves, because we are preparing to bring life into the world and we are preparing to be in the right mind and heart to create space, uh, foster a space that will foster that, that child to be an active participant in the community and in the world and bring their gifts out. Because it is also said that once that child passes, well, comes out of a mother and into this world, that the spirit there 
um, receives all sorts of gifts. And some say that they, they, they even meet a lot of their past relatives that are already moved on and they give them teachings and gifts and the child will use that. And this helps shape their, their personality. So that's one thing too, that parents can do. It's, it's start preparing their mind, start preparing their mind for that. Um, when we left the hospital with, with our daughter, it was, this uh, moment of clarity. I've never seen the world in such a clear picture. I felt like I had like really strong <laughs> prescription glasses on or something. Cause as we drove, I literally could see all the details in in the landscape in the city, like so sharp. And I just thought, wow, I really do have a new outlook on life now. Immediately, it's just been given to me. And so I'm gonna use this. And so I really recognize that moment. And the interesting thing is I've heard other parents describe that same exact thing. Other Native parents have, have described that. So um, so maintaining that when we got into the home uh, and, you know, again, all through the late pregnancy mostly and, um, and in the hospital, we were really not on our phones. We weren't on social media. It wasn't our priority to right away go online and share she was born at such and such time and this many pounds and ounces and blah 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 blah. and oh we're so you know a lot of people do that but um we decided that we wanted to keep these moments more to ourselves for a while and like eventually share a bit so i would say for a good month we were very very present and even longer than that um it was a slow transition back into um, away from, you know, the safety little bubble that we created in our little home. And I don't regret that at all. I think it was a really nice time for us to bond and to learn how to be a family. Um, and in Lakota culture, there's a term, it's called wakanyeja, which means like a sacred little one. And that's the way that they describe the baby that still has a soft spot on their head. And so in every way, just approaching those early baby months with uh, the recognition that this is a very sacred time and that you protect yourself and your family and you're just as careful as you possibly can be um, in every way. Yeah, and I, I love that. The, uh, this concept of, of that sacred little being, Wakanheja, up until they have the soft spot on, their, on the top of their head. And I've, I've heard other nations also address that talk about the importance of that and that being a very sacred time in the newborn stage. So those are the stages that I like to follow is I like to follow those original stages that our people had given name to and meaning to rather than a lot of the the dominant culture, Western medical practice of the newborn, the toddler stage. And, you know, I think that there's um, a lot deeper spiritual understanding of these different phases of uh, of a young life and they've been followed for again thousands of years i can't say it enough that these ways have been followed for a long time and they can still be applied in our modern world and so at the hospital too when we were just about to have aloe i ran into one of the elders from our community and he also had again instructed and encouraged me to 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 stay inside as a family for at least a month they said he said the first stage is crucial because you're you're learning to be a family and you're spending time together and you're getting to know each other and you shouldn't go out and drive the baby everywhere and pass the baby around to everybody oh look at my baby go ahead hold her oh look at her cheeks oh you know <laughs> and because we see that a lot in <laughs> that the, awesome accent. i know 
<laughs> we see that a lot and the child ends up getting sick. And so they understood what he told me is that back in the day that they understood germs and they understood that 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 the child needed to be strengthened. So this is why the child is pretty much only handled by the the mama and the dad um, and breastfeeding because the child is 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 creating and, and building their immune system their their microbiome and i think that that's what the science again is kind of catching up and understanding that so again historically that's what our people did they kept the baby to themselves and then they said he says the family would would have would have would have respected that and then they would sometimes they wouldn't the rest of the brothers and sisters and cousins or whoever aunties uncles wouldn't see the baby till like after a month well i think in some communities um in when breastfeeding was shared between the sisters and right and the female relatives that would be an exception to that but so it does vary a bit yeah um but yeah for the most part we did rely on the breastfeeding on my breastfeeding to keep to build her immune system and we kept her inside cozy and safe for quite a while this is a time too where you should trust your your parenting intuition and and this is what we had to do as well and we never doubted ourselves we knew that uh, we could we could raise this child and and I also want to speak to that you're talking about what coming out of the hospital and everything was so clear and I noticed it too I noticed that as well and Chels had first pointed it out and I was like yeah things do look different and and I think the process of becoming a parent is gradual when when you are pregnant but then when the baby comes into the world there's another it jumps up another notch of 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 feeling and you've gone through this this change, this spiritual, physiological change that you've gone through. So it's it's a shift that happens like, you know, in, in instants, in moments. I think it's it's one of the few times in our life that we go through a shift that quick. And and it's a it's a rite of passage. And again, it's a new responsibility. You're a new person with new roles. And now you have this life to foster. So the world looks different to you and we act different. Yeah, I know. And before um I, you know, before she was born, my mom, bless her heart, came to all the way from North Dakota. You know, she has a really demanding um, career that she um, is responsible for, you know, a lot of employees under her. And she took time off right before my due date. Well, she ended up staying here three weeks because uh, I was so late to deliver in. I kept telling her, mom, it's okay. You can go home. You can go home. And she just insisted, no, no, no. I'm going to stay with you. I will not leave until this baby is born. And uh, let me just say moms are always right because I do not know how I would have got through that delivery without my mom. And even that first night in the hospital, oh my gosh, like if you have the opportunity to have somebody there to support, please just accept that help because it, it is hard. Um, but the other thing that I will say about that is I was so scared for her to leave and she did have to leave finally, you know, after the baby arrived, she's like, okay, I better go home now. And it was hard. It was really hard for all of us emotionally, you know, for her to leave. Um, and I was scared, but the minute that baby, I held her in my arms, I knew that I was, the best caretaker for her. I knew that I could do it. And I just had all of the confidence in the world that I am the mama for her. And so to all of you ladies out there who might be 
a little bit nervous about what am I going to do? You know, there are a lot of logistics in it, but your instincts will kick in like so hardcore and you will just know exactly how to take care of your baby. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing to watch Chels go through that shift. I always talk about it. And like I said before, I'm still trying to come up with the right words to describe watching her shift becoming a mom. It's just amazing. It's one of the most amazing and humbling things I've ever been able to witness and be a part of. So in my case, I was also healing from a C-section in the first, um, you know, weeks that we were home. And so I think that it was really Thosh's role to be there um, to help me physically as well, because it was difficult for me to walk or to get out of bed. And so he was really responsible for, I don't know, what was, what kind of stuff were you doing for me? Um, when you were sitting in the bed, breastfeeding aloe, like I would bring stuff to you a lot because... It would be uh, too much of a task for you to put her down and then, you know, kind of crawl out of the the big, you know, the, the the bed and go walk and get things. And so I stayed present and made sure that I was just constantly bringing her stuff and trying to make her as comfortable as possible just to kind of help with her healing and recovery. Because if the mom has to get up and keep doing things, then, you know, that could delay her recovery and her healing. Mm-hmm. And you were definitely the one to go out and run errands for us and like oh, yes. get stuff if we needed it, right? The grocery store too. Like I was running to the grocery store and doing all that. And the one to cook and clean. And right. He really had to take on those roles. And uh, he did it without complaining. And so that's really important too because when you are um, the, the one breastfeeding, the mom is the one breastfeeding, obviously, then you have other things to worry you have enough emotionally and physically to worry about so it's really important that the dad doesn't give an extra hard time and oh i gotta do this i gotta do that yeah and it's unfortunate that a lot of employers don't have paternal leave and i know some of them do now and i and i have the privilege of working from home so i know it's easy for me to kind of say that or recommend that but i think even for fathers that are working full-time you know they can still find ways to to assist and it does require more effort and more of your participation. It does require more being home and kind of sacrificing some of um, the things that you might do for leisure, even sacrificing spending two hours at the gym. Maybe you only go there for 45 minutes or, you know, or, you know, you you're the only one who likes to spend two hours at the gym. No, like an hour, <laughs> hour and a half. And so, yeah, it does take, um, so a lot of effort on behalf of the father, if the mom is happy to have to recover from something such as uh, a C-section surgery, which is a very major surgery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we can talk a lot more about the logistical stuff of taking care of a newborn and stuff. Again, that's a, that's a future episode. We'll do that eventually. Back to the material items and things. One thing that we did not do is have a nursery, a uh, separate room for her. We created a little corner for her in our bedroom with her changing table and some sacred items and th stuff that she would need. And we, from the get-go, had her sleeping in the bed with us. At first, we used a docatot, which is like a little um, a little baby bed that fits right in your own bed, basically. And it's very safe and it has this comfortable little microclimate for them because of the barrier that's around it. 
So you can Google that DACA top, but there's other, you know, places that make similar things. Or some people say, well, I didn't have a DACA top, but I rolled up towels around a little mat or something. You know, you can do your own thing. But in any case, that was a really great solution for us because we were a little bit slightly nervous about, am I really going to be that alert to not at all roll on my baby? Well, quickly we, we realized that we were that alert. Um, there was never any risk of us not being even in our sleep and our sleep deprived, deprived state fully aware of where the baby was in our bed and next to us. We both learned basically how to sleep like stiff as a board. And it's so funny because in the beginning, we still had a queen size bed. And now the best investment that we ever made as our baby has grown and still sleeps with us is we bought a California King. And so that is one material item I really feel like we could not live without is our king size bed at this point. But um, in any case, uh the nurses and doctors, even in the hospital, they really stress that co-sleeping. They say it's dangerous. They say your baby has to sleep in a separate crib or bassinet. Um, they, And the reason they say that is because all hospitals around the country use this study that did not take into account that many of its subjects were using substances like drugs or alcohol. And so those were the cases in which uh, the parents would roll on or suffocate the baby. So uh, yes, when you have all this junk around like extra piled up blankets or piled up clothes, that can get in the way of the breathing. If you yourself are wearing too much big, loose, heavy piled up clothes, that can get in the way of the breathing. You do need to have open space for the baby. Um, and you do need to be fully in a conscious mind. You can't be drinking or doing drugs. Then you will not be a safe person to sleep with a newborn. But, um, you know, so that's just our, what we've learned. And um, there's a lot more information coming out about that now and more studies being done on not just historical, but also contemporary indigenous communities around the world that have some of the lowest rates of SIDS or um, you know, something happening to the baby in the sleep and they are co-sleeping. So the other benefits have to do with, um, the easier access to the breastfeeding. The mom ends up getting more sleep. Everybody's, you know, jumps into the circadian rhythm a little bit more quickly. Um, I can't imagine even now with a one and a half year old having her sleep in a separate room from us. I just don't believe in sleep training. I don't believe in, um, in that type of stuff. And again, you know, to each his own, but that's what we believe. And I just want to say that it has worked out really well for us. That's the way I grew up too. You know, when my mom was, was mothering all of us, we all slept in the bed with her and my dad, you know, that's the way it was. We didn't have the luxury of having another room down the hallway with like this, you know, big fancy crib and some kind of baby cam, <laughs> you know, or baby radio walkie talkie to let them know when the baby's awake, you know? Um, and, and again, this is this is how our ancestors have thrived and sustained for centuries, generations. The baby always slept with the mama. And again, if you look at a lot of our homes, the 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 key, the hogan, the the wigwams, the the longhouses, the teepee, um, plank houses, all of that, they they all were once one big room in there. You know, there was very few dividers in there. And so this is how people evolved. This is how humans came to be. That's how we got this far. 
And again, you know, a lot of the conventional medical wisdom, a lot of it is just flawed, you know, and it's, it's, there's a lot of confounding factors that they, they did not take into account when they conduct these studies. And many people within that institution don't even critically assess that. They just take it and say, oh, this is what the institution says. This is what they're teaching. And this is what I need to follow. And a lot of times they're not critically thinking about it. So they don't have all the answers. So part of the the child sleeping close to the mom is is also crucial for that bonding stage. This is this is great for um, emotional development. This is this is shaping the baby's brain in these crucial stages. This connection to to the to the mama is this is a very very sacred and special thing, you know. And so we encourage everyone to do your research too to find out and find out what works for you. So the other thing with staying off of our phones and just being present and in the moment is that. Um, we were not taking a lot of pictures of her or posting pictures of her. And we still don't do that. And uh, we wrote a blog post on uh, our website about that. So if you go to wellforculture.com, it's called Why We Don't Show Our Baby's Face. And that's a decision that we made prior to our baby being born. I just had a feeling about it. And it's kind of, you know, we're in this position where we do rely on social media for our job. It makes some people say, well, why don't you just not go on social media at all? Well, we don't have that option because our job really requires us to be on there. It makes all of the difference for us in the amount of work that we get and the amount of trainings that we're hired for. So we have to be on social media. And since we are wellness advocates, we do share a lot about family wellness, but we do not show our baby's face And we also um, are a little bit conservative with the number of pictures that we post that she's even in at all. And that has been, again, a really good choice for us. And um, I just think that it protects the baby to a certain degree. And you'll read about that in the blog post. But what's interesting, too, is even after I wrote that, I saw in the Wall Street Journal, you know, uh, a non-native writer wrote about that same thing. And she had we had kind of a, um, uh, you know, an indigenous perspective on it, of course, and she had kind of like a technology perspective on it. And she was saying how, um, you know, the, the image of the child or as they get older could be manipulated for different reasons and um, used for, you know, advertising purposes and um, all these different things. And you just don't want that much uh, digital information about your child out there. So we're not the only people saying this. Um, and I'm really happy that we've stuck to that decision, even though some people have said, you guys are weird. What's wrong with you? Like, why don't you just show the baby? You know, I mean, we have between us, you know, we're not celebrities, but we've got, you know, 50,000 people between our pages. And, um, we just, I just feel like that's enough anonymous eyes that I would rather them not necessarily see aloe. And it's really fun when we meet people in person because they're always so excited to see her. They're like, oh, there she is. You know, like they've they don't see her a hundred times a day on our social media. So they're really excited to meet her in person. Yeah. People who are critical thinkers and see the world um, really for what's going on, they understand this. But a lot of people with small minds that are just in a box and judgmental, they don't understand this. And maybe they will in the future. I hope they do for the safety of their own children. But we don't post pictures all of her all over our social media because 
Aloe isn't old enough to give consent to her image being shared online for thousands of strangers to see. Um, and since the rapid growth of social media in our lives, this is like a novel issue. This is new. This is something that requires parents to be more thoughtful in, about how much they're sharing of their children because you don't know who's out there is watching. There's stories online where the parents talked about um, that the ch these children, these two children were we were at a playground playing and they're in bathing suits and the picture was posted online and it was stolen by a, a, a child pornographer producer and they are really good at manipulating the image to change to change the activity at what the children are doing. And this is this is disturbing. This is oh, shocking. Horrible. And your children's your child's image could be online for thousands of of sick people that are online searching for child pornography that's a thing and people are getting busted every day in dominant culture for that it's an illness in our society and when we are oversaturating our social media with our children we're, we're we're allowing that in a sense i'm not trying to guilt anybody i'm just saying it's something more to think about this is an issue because it's it's like a balance between the parents right to share about their children but also the right to the child giving consent to their digital footprint online being started. So this is, it's a really, it's a, it's a really new contemporary issue. And like Chelsea said, we're not the only parents doing this. There's a lot of parents that are already doing that. There, if you do a Google search online, you'll see people and even in dominant culture writing about this. I like scrolling through my social media and seeing all sorts of new indigenous parents too that are deciding not to show their baby's face. Some people put emoji over it or some people just show the, the, the baby from, from behind. They just don't, they cut the face off because people still want to share, but we don't want to make it too accessible. You know, that's our right to be able to share how much we want. So if you're a non-parent or if you know the parent, it would, it would be, it would be, it would be respectful just to simply respect the choices and the wishes of those parents. It's quite simple. The technological component to it is quite interesting as well, because now it's it's not just a, a matter of safety. Um, it is, I mean, safety in a sense where two uh, parents are hashtagging, they're geotagging, they're giving they're giving up the exact location of the child, and this is could be dangerous. There are people who are online stalkers and predators. They're looking for any opportunity to abduct children, and so. Um, facial recognition can be turned off too with your social media, Facebook and Instagram. And Facebook and Instagram has said that they actually don't see that data. Um, it's on the cloud, but still people are choosing to not share, um, to turn off the facial recognition option on, on the technology. Another thing too that trips me out, if you think about it too, like, okay, think about when social media first became prevalent. I first got on MySpace back in 2003. And there was, it was already huge. It was big. And there was tons of people on there. People were already sharing the pictures of their children. Um, I have one friend back then in 2003, 2003, 2004, that chose not to post pictures of her child because she said that she didn't believe that uh, it was right and that um, spiritually it might impact her child if, if, if the wrong people are seeing it. And, um, and, and I think that there's two ways to look at it. Um, you know, you can look at it from a spiritual and practical, or you can look at it as both, or you can look at them as reflections of one another. And so, but if you think about it too, social media has been prominent since then. So a lot of the children today, um, say if they're born in the early 2000s, they're there and their picture was being posted on social media since then, their digital footprint goes back their entire life. 
their entire life is online. And did that child give consent? How do they feel looking back and scrolling, you know, 15, you know, 20 years later and seeing their parents post pictures of them naked in the bathtub or throwing a temper tantrum? How do you think that would feel? A lot of us have uh, pictures, photographs of us when we were children that we're embarrassed of. Imagine if that's online on the Internet and everybody can see it. It's something to think about. A child's digital footprint even starts while they're in utero because a lot of parents will take the sonogram picture and they'll put it on the Internet for everyone to see. This child has not even made it into the world yet, yet thousands are looking at them. It's interesting. You know, it's something about respecting that privacy of that new young life. As we continue on consciously parenting our child also, it's definitely a priority of ours to keep her Um, in the real world and to know how to be present and mindful and to not be addicted to phones, TVs, social media, all that kind of stuff. So the steps that we've taken so far is first of all, getting her really interested in books. Uh, We started reading to her at age, I believe five months, and she immediately took interest in the books and that continues to be her favorite activity. So uh, you can Uh, get your child interested in books from a very, very young age. So we really recommend starting even earlier than it might seem like they're still just an infant, but they can really start paying attention and even just recognizing and learning the image or the mechanism of a book right away and learning to hold it in their hands and to touch the pages. Um, So we recommend that right away. Uh, The other thing is that we did not show her any cartoons until she was probably a year old and even then thankfully she didn't really take interest now she'll watch a cartoon for about 20 minutes at the absolute maximum but we never just like leave her in a room with an ipad or anything she's never held an ipad in her hands if we turn on a show for her it's going to be on the tv or um like far uh, away from where she can't interact with a touch screen Um, sometimes on the laptop if we're in a pinch. And that's been important because what we've seen too often is that kids who have no clue how to use a book, but they can uh, navigate an iPhone like it's like it's nothing. And this really has implications on the neurological development of the child and on the attention span. And so even though it seems like the easier solution to just give technology, give technology the minute they demand it, Uh, What you're going to find is that that will create problems for you in the future because the child's attention span will be so hyper-stimulated that they will not be able to sit there and pay attention to anything without having that uh, cartoon playing. And what's even worse is when it's the type of cartoon that's like a mindless thing. Um, If we do show her something, we want it. What she loves is music. So we're kind of okay. Barney right now is her favorite. So we're kind of okay with her um, watching something that she can sing and dance and interact with. We also show her uh, the Berenstein Bears in Lakota Api, which is a a production of the Lakota Language Consortium, and it's available on YouTube. Um, We like her to be able to hear her indigenous languages. And so we'll show her that cartoon, and she likes to watch that. But for the most part, we really are... Of course, we're only a a year and a half in, so we haven't been presented with all of the challenges of that aspect. So I don't want to speak too soon and say we're all good, but 
uh, we're going to try as hard as we can to not have her be addicted to technology. Right. We'll see, we'll see how that goes. We've heard a lot of the challenges that other parents have faced with this as well. But also to part of the this, this the stage of when the baby's in this newborn sacred stage and after, part of oh, a lot of our original teachings was that we get out on the land and we introduce the child to everything, the trees. And that was one thing we did with Aula when she was about six months is we took her to the river when it finally got warm is we dipped her little feet in the river and, taught, and introduced her to the river. This is the river right here. This is part of one of your, your ancestors' lifelines right here. And this brings life to us and it brings life to the desert. And we see the the, the eagle fly over and we teach her, look at look at that's the bog, that's the migazi, that's the the wambli, and and teach him all these things. And the child's mind is absorbing all of this. Even though the child doesn't quite make sense of what it's seeing, its young brain is still being shaped by the world around them. So we're choosing to give those experiences to the child. And this will help. This starts their worldview off in a good way. And so we really made it a point to go in and, and to also introduce her to all the plants of the desert. And she actually planted uh, some some hard squash. She planted autumn squash when she was four months old. And that was part of something that we did in, in uh, introducing her to to the 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 way of life of, of, of planting our foods. And, you know, these these are the things that we encourage all parents to do before we start giving them, you know, the iPads and iPhones and things, which I believe in the near future a lot. And it already is going in this direction. A lot of schools are utilizing iPads and stuff like that for the educational purposes, which I think is acceptable when it's in the classroom. However, at home, like Chelsea said, I agree. Uh, we don't want the brain to become developed in just one area of processing things on a two-dimensional screen and interacting with touch screen and buttons and all that. And so the child's brain, again, is very malleable. It'll absorb anything you give it. So, um, the books is is one thing that I love to see. So in addition to the books, one thing that we've always been conscious of, even in the pregnancy, is exposing her to the right kinds of music. And Thosh would always sing to her with his gourd or with his hand drum when I was pregnant. And when she came out, she really did recognize those songs. And to this day, she loves to play the drum. That's one of her favorite things to do. It's one of the first things she learned um, is we would say, can you sing and play your drum? And she would go, ah, you know, and um, in her little baby voice and and bang on whatever was next to her. And so that's something that we're really going to foster and nurture is her interest in music and interest in dance. And um, so we really recommend that, again, your baby can pick that up super, super young and early. So start that right away. And then another indigenous tradition and part of our culture that sometimes we forget about is our storytelling, too. And I've been trying to tell her stories without books. And that to me, that's the continuation of our oral tradition. Whether I make up the stories in my head or I tell things I've heard of like our creation stories or, um, you know, stories that my parents told to me growing up. I try to tell her stories without books because that's another totally different way that engages their mind and engages their their and my creativity. So we love to um, think outside the box and and do those practices that are also our culture. We always, you know, we remember our, our dances and our songs and our gatherings that we go to, but sometimes we forget about our storytelling culture. So I encourage all parents to do that as well. Yeah, and for 
for all of you that sing too, that sing your your songs, that's a good thing to do. Like Chelsea said, we did that when when we were pregnant, but we also did that a lot with Aloe. And I would hold her when when I would when I would Aloe was a newborn, I would hold her, and I would uh, hum songs to her. And sometimes I would do that. I'd wake up in the middle of the night when Chels was exhausted and I'd take Aloe and I'd hold her and I'd hum to her and I'd sing her songs and she would fall right back asleep. And a lot of times, uh, a lot of new songs came to me. And so they're songs that that I still sing. And some of them are, are ceremonial songs that I sing because I feel like that's part of the child's gift is a child helps to bring these things here. When they say children are sacred and children are a gift, that's one of the gifts that they can bring too. if you're a singer is that I created all these songs that uh, happened while I was carrying aloe. And one thing that everyone can do, uh, and even all the fathers, is that when you have baby on your chest, you put, you're you putting baby over your heart and baby's heart is on top of yours. And our heart is very powerful. And the physical warmth of our heart is the real is actual physical manifestation of that spiritual power that resonates from our heart and it goes out eight to 10 feet of us. And when you are in close contact with that child and have baby on your chest, that's the way you can also communicate with baby is by breathing deeply and calmly. And you're sending out a signal, a calming signal to, to the child. And this is also good for bonding too. And I've been doing this with Aloe since she was a newborn. And now that she's almost two, it, it still calms her down in a lot of instances. And so that's something I really encourage is connecting with your your baby at that level as well. And uh, one thing that we tried to show Aloe to when she was about like, I don't know, what was she like eight or nine months when we tried to show her some mindful breathing? And um, so I was like, Aloe was like, breathe with me. And I was breathing in my nose and I was exhaling out my mouth and I was showing her just she was in a cheerful mood too and so i was trying to show her because i wanted to be a way for her to regulate her emotions and um she was kind of doing it you know she was kind of being playful and so uh so i kind of forgot about it i thought oh i'll come back to that later and then months later we're driving and she's in her car seat in the back and she's doing it on her own we didn't even prompt her she just started breathing and she's taking deep breaths in her nose she's all and then she's exhaling it, making the sound going, <sighs> and she kept doing it over and over and she was smiling and she was in such a good mood. And, you know, she was barely a year and a half. And so this is, is important. Your, your child's never too early to, to learn something like that, to regulate their emotions, to, to breathe consciously and mindfully and, and again, she also watches us do this. We do this at home and we also do this in a lot of our welfare culture trainings. We teach breathing, mindful breathing from an indigenous standpoint. So she's constantly observing that. So again, this is all more um, telling of how children are shaped by their environment. Children are shaped by the habits of their parents or their caretakers. So in addition to the breathing, the baby will, of course, copy and learn everything that you do, which is why it's important to maintain that practice of watching your language and um, watching your actions. One time I was tickling Thosh and he doesn't like to be tickled anyway, but he was just on the floor laughing. But Aloe thought I was hurting him and she got really upset. And so it's really important to just be be careful with your actions around your your child and um, make sure that the home is a safe space for them. 
We also love to reinstill healthy habits and break those uh, cycles of trauma by reincorporating new activities and new things that become normal for the child. So what we've really normalized in our home and in our free time is physical activity almost every day. Well, really every single day. We At least we go for a walk outside somewhere as a family, or we also go to our tribal wellness center together. And ours is called the Wolf. It's on the Salt River Reservation. And we love the staff there. They're so friendly to Aloe and they've probably seen her more than they've seen many of their other clients. She's there almost every day and um, she uses the library there and we stroll her through uh, the studio and the weight room and she um, we pass her back and forth as we get our workouts done and we give each other time to work out. And so um, I don't think I stepped foot into a gym until I was in college. And so that's going to be a really different experience for Aloe that she grows up you know, going to a gym every single day. And knowing that sh- that space is for her, it's not just for us. Yeah, and you kind of reminded me too about um, following some of these other teachings. And uh, growing up, one of our our very powerful healers in our community would always advise us and remind us to not to not frighten children, to not scare children. The traditional knowledge says that it weaken their spirit, and I think the other knowledge is scientific is finding out that it can even it, it traumatizes the child and when a person is traumatized a slew of other issues come out as a result of that and i know i seen this a lot growing up that children were shown scary movies and the parents wondered why the kid was having behavior problems or didn't want to go to sleep at night by themselves and so this is very practical it's, it's a very simple thing but the child should not be scared or frightened at all that we should never create that for them because um, we are definitely setting them up for um, some obstacles a little bit later on in their development and a, a big part of of conscious and responsive indigenous parenting is objectively breaking those unhealthy lifestyle patterns that we have we have learned from dominant culture and as a result of colonialism it's breaking the cycles of trauma and consciously creating new healthy cycles in place like Chelsea had mentioned. This is very important. This has to be um, on the parent's mind at all times. This has to influence our our life and without us really thinking about it. Uh, we have to really have these things in the forefront of our mind. This is important for healing our historical trauma and being able to thrive and being able to pass our cultures and our traditions, our practices, our songs, all of that on to the next generation is that it starts with us being responsive, conscious, indigenous parents and understanding that there's a need for us to heal and a need for us to revitalize our child rearing practices and also evolve them, preserve them and evolve them because the society around us is changing. Contemporary culture is changing and we have to evolve to meet the demands of it in order to sustain and be in a good way in this modern day and age. There is a lot more to be said about parenting. We could probably talk about this for days, but another final tip for conscious parenting is time management is important to the best that you can, but sometimes it isn't always perfect. And now that Aloe is awake, you might be able to hear her playing with her little books and squeaking around in the background. Uh, It's time for us to wrap this up and to read to her and give her a bath and get out and about and get our day going. So we really appreciate everybody who has listened here. Uh, We're definitely going to have more episodes on parenting in the future. 
And we welcome any comments about other Indigenous parents that have been revitalizing certain things or, um, sh you know, incorporating these, uh, you know, rejuvenated Indigenous practices into their parenting. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. So please share, comment, and enjoy everything that we have shared here in this episode. <laughs> 